Howdy, everyone. We have a great episode for you today. We discuss Biden's tone-deaf victory lap on inflation. And then Tim and I spent some time at the Texas Capitol this week monitoring the Texas Senate's local government committee hearings where they covered things like taxpayer-funded lobbying and property tax reform, among a whole host of other issues. Stay tuned. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, and it's only made possible from generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Good evening. Welcome to Taxpayer Talks, the podcast where we hold Austin accountable by keeping taxpayers up to date with news that affects your wallets. My name is Tim Harden. I'm president of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. This is our executive director, Jeremy Kitchen. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Doing all right, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's been a busy week. It's been a busy week. What, what have we been up to this week? Yeah, well, we've been at the Capitol, right, monitoring the Senate Local Government Committee hearing uh, that lasted probably longer than I initially thought it would uh, last. But they, they talked about important uh, th- or things that are important to taxpayers. So, of course, that was the impetus for us being there. And uh, we've got a new website and all sorts of stuff. Been a busy week, man. Yeah, it has been. It has been. Uh, I have, uh, of course, I joined you in Austin earlier this week. Uh, And then this evening, I'm actually going to be out in Denton, Texas with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West as we are uh, introducing a new chapter of conservatives out in the Ropes and Ranch community. So I'm excited about that. Uh, And of course, we've uh, written a number of articles on uh, everything we're going to talk about today. So it's been an exciting, busy week. I look forward to getting into the news. Well, let's look uh, at news on the federal level. Of course, we had big news this week. Uh, The most recent CPI was released, uh, and it was actually a miss, although it came down, I believe, from 8.5 to 8.3. They were expecting or estimating 8.1. And the the funny thing about this is... uh, the Biden administration, I guess, was expecting good numbers, and so they had timed a, you know, this press conference celebrating their Inflation Reduction Act and how big of a success it was, but uh, it, it, in fact, was not. It was ill and poorly timed. As a matter of fact, I think the market just dumped after the CPI data came out. Uh, and so uh, what, do you, what do you think about the optics here from the Biden administration? Tone deaf, I think, is probably the the best way to summarize uh, what happened. Just kind of knowing like the behind the scenes of how politics works, at least on the state level, you know, and you have like advanced teams, right? And there's all this preparation for stuff like this. Completely tone deaf, right? To sit here and try to dunk on, you know, an act that I guess was passed like a month ago now, right? As if, you know as if inflation was like a a solved issue, you know, as if it went down like a whole point as if, you know, families all around the United States aren't paying more for groceries or, you know, just the cost of living gone up. I mean, to claim victory for something, uh, it was completely tone deaf and very odd. Like, I don't know if you watched the proceedings at all, uh, but it was this kind of like weird rally that took place in front of the white house. And like, it had, I think you had like Chuck Schumer there and Nancy Pelosi there, right? And it was just a very odd experience all around. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, I think we've we've mentioned this before in previous podcasts, but just the name, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. Of course, it it doesn't reduce inflation; it actually increases inflation. And I thought it was funny when you look at you know how CPI works, and of course, there's critiques we could throw just at CPI in general. But uh, you know, when when inflation was going up, they were saying, well, you know, it's it's mainly energy, energy that's pulling it up. Well, you know, energy gas has actually gone down, so it's actually pulled CPI down, and we can see that core inflation actually rose this go around. And so despite, you know, gas helping out, you know, a CPI overall, the core inflation is going up, which is very worrisome. And so most uh, economists are expecting the Fed to continue to clamp down, be hawkish. Uh, I think there was the sentiment that if it continued to slide down, that they would become more dovish and maybe ease up a little bit on, on quantitative restricting, you know, uh, funds. It does not look like that's the case. And it looks like inflation is going to be here for a really long time, um, which is, you know, all the more reason to take care of uh, fiscal issues on the state level to help out taxpayers. And, of course, we are uh, are focusing on what the committees were talking about this week uh, with taxpayer-funded lobbying. And I want to go uh, way back, probably about a decade, to a clip that Abbott had. Let's take a look at that before we get into taxpayer-funded lobbying. Another, another practice at the Capitol that must end is using tax dollars to hire lobbyists to lobby for school districts or school boards. <laughs> using your money to lobby for more of your money is a conflict of interest, and that practice must stop. So, wow. Uh, so this clip is about a decade old. It was from 2013, I believe. And uh, surprise, surprise, we still have not banned taxpayer-funded lobbying. And so this is uh, a subject that's part of our Texas Prosperity Plan. Of course, we've mentioned multiple times it's been a priority twice in the past. 95% of Republicans absolutely oppose the practice. And, of course, we've talked at length of what, what happened last go-round. Uh, what are your thoughts on this clip, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said that this that was the governor on the campaign trail for when he was first elected. Right. And that was almost a decade ago. And here we are still talking about it being a problem. Right. Something uh, that taxpayers should certainly be concerned about. Right. As uh, people that they do not elect are they're advocating almost all the time against their own interest, right, on behalf of the people that they do elect, right, where they've kind of uh, given these responsibilities over these people operating in this very shady way. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting, you know, like, look, like this was 10 years ago that he said we should address this. The governor has the bully pulpit effectively, and it still isn't done, you know. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, if if you understand politics, you know that the governor has the sole authority to, if something is not passed during the legislative session, he can call an infinite amount of special sessions and force the legislature to uh, accomplish these goals, and he has yet to do that. Um, kind of moving on to what uh, we experienced this week, we were, were in the uh, Senate uh, Committee on Local Government, uh, and this was brought up. And uh, for the most part, you know, there's some pretty lackluster uh, reforms, but uh, James Quintero with uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a friend of ours, uh, was uh, testifying and was, was asked a, a question, I believe, by Senator Menendez, right? And so we want to look at his response real quick and take a look at a clip from that hearing. I have okay. a question. Oh, sure. Thank you. The only question I have is I, I think I understand your concern is that 
the way I heard you stated is that you believe that at times these lobbyists may be acting not in the same interest as the taxpayers that are, whose dollars are paying for them. Is that what you had said? Yes, sir. So then why is it that you'd be – you said your least favorite option would be to let the voters decide? So I am of the opinion that this practice ought not be allowed in the first place. Okay. But if we are going to permit it, I think that um, it it exists um, – the most suitable environment is one in which voters have offered their consent. So I, I, I believe that obviously the voters put us here to represent them, and I, I trust the voters and, and for many things. Uh, question, you have a concern with transparency, right? That was – it's been brought up over and over. Now, my understanding is that you – did you find – did you I hear you correctly? You said you found the Austin agenda online? Uh, Twitter, On, one of my favorite places. <laughs> Online, Twitter, okay. So, but you, but so you, you found what they were looking to do, right? It wasn't hidden. I guess is my point. I think, I think there is transparency. Is this an issue of of who's doing it, what they're doing, it, and and is this an issue of transparency or just an issue that you don't believe? Because my concern is, many municipalities have volunteer policymakers. You know, they're not paid, uh, and therefore. If the policymakers aren't paid and they have, let's say, a city manager running the city on a day-to-day basis, well, how are they supposed to keep up with what things are happening here in the capital? Uh, and, and by the same token, as a state, we hire lobbyists to represent the state of Texas in, in, in Washington. So what is the difference? That's a great question, Senator. So one of the, one of the clear distinctions in my mind is the difference between education and advocacy. So I wouldn't have any issue with, let's say, a Texas Municipal League or a Texas Association of Counties or, or whatnot tracking bills and informing members. These are the pieces of legislation that are pertinent to your jur- jurisdiction that are moving through the process. But it takes a step in a bad direction when they then participate in the legislative process and begin either killing or advancing bills. I think that's the red line in my mind. I understand your point. I, I think maybe at that point it's the policymakers, and we need to ask policymakers from those municipalities. And maybe they're the ones in asking them to advocate on their behalf because they can't be here. So I don't know. We'll we'll see. But I appreciate your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, so that was interesting, right? I mean, he, he flat out asked him, you know, why it is that that was his least favorite approach was sending it to the voters. And to James's credit, right? It's it's a practice he thinks that shouldn't exist, and, and we agree, right? It's something, as you talked about, was in our Texas is, is currently in our Texas Prosperity Plan. It's something that we've talked about for, for months, if not years now, right, as a, as a thing that should be practiced. Um, uh, what do you think about that, Tim? I mean, to me, the, the practice in and of itself is immoral. Uh, what we're doing is we are taking tax dollars from taxpayers who are already stretched thin, and then uh, local officials, whether it be cities or ISDs or counties, are then hiring lobbyists to go do their job. And then that lobbyist who was not elected by the people is going and advocating against taxpayers for reforms or, or changes in statute that will ultimately end up uh, in in more tax money coming in. A good, a good example of that would be some of the problems we have with the property tax and the confusing language and no new revenue rates and things like that. Uh, absolutely, lobbyists were sent down to advocate uh, on behalf of local uh, subdivisions 
to uh, stir up more tax dollars. It's it's in there. It's a conflict of interest. Absolutely. I mean, it's important to note too, right? Like that the the Senate did at least have a hearing on her. The Senate Local Government Committee talking about this issue again, of course, as you know, and we've talked about several times, right? The Senate has passed a version, you know, varying versions of a ban on the practice over the last few sessions. The most recent legislative session uh, there in 2021, they, of course, passed a ban that was on specific local jurisdictions. It was hijacked when it got over to the House um, and it was made better to the extent, obviously, that, you know, uh, it extended to all local jurisdictions. But gutted completely by the uh, chairman of the House State Affairs Committee, Chris Patty, in that Ultimately, it made it to where there were a bunch of loopholes, right? Like you're classifying people as consultants that weren't no, were no longer lobbyists. They could still do the practice. It ended up dying in the House uh, due to kind of this deadline kicking towards the end of the legislative session. And, you know, here we are talking about it. It wasn't put on special, legis- uh, special sessions, as we talked about earlier, by Greg Abbott, even though obviously it was something he came out against uh, previously. I remember Dan Patrick asked Abbott shortly after the uh, conclusion right or like in the last few days of the regular session to have it be added as something that was in the special sessions and it wasn't so here we are in the interim right lead up to the next legislative session talking about it again as something uh, that should should certainly get done this time yeah the you know the question i think uh, we're asking is who's going to carry this in the house because as you mentioned so Betancourt's version of the bill, who who was the chair of this committee, uh, was actually the one that made it over. I believe Bob Hall also had a, a version that was a companion to Mays Middleton's bill in the House, which is an outright ban. Uh, it was a, the strongest version of the bill, uh, and that that version did not make it very far. But of course, Mays has now moved over to the Senate, or will be moving over to the Senate this next go round. So the question is, who's going to carry this in the House? Uh, we don't know, uh, but we will certainly be keeping everyone up to date on this uh, and, and everything else in our Texas Prosperity Plan. But uh, to continue with that thought, we have uh, a lot of property tax talk. So we were talking about SB2. We were talking about uh, property tax reforms. And, uh, and of course, you've heard us talk about the surplus. And so the committee was, uh, was speaking on property tax reform. What do we hear, Jeremy? Uh, we heard a lot of kind of, I guess, cheering of the Property Tax Reform Act, right, from 2019. I mean, in fairness to the committee, the charge, right, what they were supposed to review was the SB2 or Senate Bill 2, as we know it, right, uh, the Property Tax Transparency Act or whatever it was dubbed, and kind of review and say, okay, what adjustments need to be made, if any. Um, some of the testimony, uh, mainly by James Quintero, again, right, like kind of used that as an, as an excuse to talk about out, you know, improvements that could be made. He was pretty much the only one that mentioned using the budget surplus, right, to buy down the maintenance and operation portions of the tax, which, of course, is, as you talked about, is a part of our Texas Prosperity Plan as well. Um, so he mentioned that, but there was very little discussion by the committee members themselves uh, to use uh, the budget surplus for those purposes. In fact, I think the biggest takeaway from all of the discussion about the property tax reform stuff was more that it, they just wanted to make kind of nuanced changes. And that those that came to testify were mainly local bureaucrats, right? Kind of complaining about things that they had to currently comply with, or maybe something wasn't as efficient as it could be, as opposed to actually, right, using uh, surplus money or some like coming up with ideas on to uh, providing additional relief. 
Yeah, it, it's it's a little bit worrisome, you know, when when the the main narrative in the media and with organizations like T, TPPF and, and Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, we have been speaking ad nauseum about the surplus and what a huge opportunity it is to provide actual tax relief and the fact that it was mainly absent from the hearing itself and most of the reforms they spoke about were little, you know, redefining terms and little nitpicky things. Uh, it, it makes me a little worried going into session about what exactly we're going to see. Now, of course, we have seen Abbott and then, uh, like I said, rumors that Patrick is is dedicating at least half, if not more than half of that surplus. Uh, and so we we hope they go in that direction. Uh, there was a few other things we saw in the committee, mainly from us, uh, new newly minted Senator Springer. Uh, I believe we he talked uh, about the idea of a consumption based tax, uh, which of course even even the, our platform has had in uh, in regards to lowering property tax thresholds. But he brought up a, just a weird scenario. I believe he made the comment that. You know, we tax ice in Texas. And then he came and said that maybe we should, we don't tax bottled water. And so maybe we should tax bottled water uh, in an effort to, you know, continue to pay down compression rates or give, you know, give relief to property taxes. And, you know, all that, I guess that is technically a a consumption-based tax. Uh, It's just a little strange that we'd go to a bottled water tax. And I would argue not, not a very conservative idea. What, What are your thoughts, Jeremy? It was an odd example to bring up. I think he mentioned in the course of the hearing that it's, you know, he brings it up in his town halls or what have you, but the way it was, I I don't know. I mean, I, it was just very weirdly presented and that, you know, he kind of started talking about a consumption based tax, which for all intents and purposes, right. For, and and we get this when we talk to folks is, you know, the plan would be if you replace the property tax, what would it be replaced with a lot of people, right. We don't explicitly come out in favor of anything, but a lot of people say it should be some sort of consumption consumption-based tax as it's more transparent and fair. Um, and so it, like, it kind of started like, oh, he was going down that road. Let's see where this goes. And then yeah. he brought up this kind of odd example of, well, we tax ice, but we don't tax bottled water, you know, I guess because it's the same thing, just in a different, different state, uh, if you will. And it was just, it kind of landed odd in my opinion, or at least it's what it felt like. Um, and that it was just a weird example to use when talking about a sales tax, right. Or, or, uh, you know, where, how, what the state regulates and doesn't, um, as a replacement, I don't know. Yeah. You know, another, another thing that Senator Springer, uh, said, which was odd was during, uh, appraisal reform, they were talking about the efficiency of the appraisal, you know, protest process and, and all this. And he, he suggested, uh, and I think to the chagrin of some people that were sitting in the room, that maybe a way that we could reform this would we charge taxpayers a fee to like reserve their their spot uh, for their protest, and if they don't show up, we like tack it onto their tax bill or, or or something along those lines. Which, yet again, speaking of tone deaf earlier, I mean that is so tone deaf. We have taxpayers literally drowning and the solution that we come up with in a hearing is we're going to charge them a fee for the privilege of coming and protesting an appraisal that is uh is distorted anyways from the market value it's just it's it's wild and and I guess my my worry for Springer is you know to to be fair he you know he came over from the house with a pretty abysmal uh, index score on our index he went over to the Senate 
And he scored an 84. He was fourth overall in the Senate. He made a huge improvement and pleasantly surprised us. We will continue to praise him for that. The question is, you know, this next go around, uh, are, are we going to see him slide again? Or are we going to see him uh, stay strong? I guess we, we will tell next year. But what, what are your thoughts on uh, on those comments in the hearing, Jeremy? I mean, there, there's probably like I my assumption would be and I think he kind of spoke to this. Right. Is that like for especially smaller local governments, right? Like there's a huge burden for, you know, these, these, the, the uh, review boards, right. When they sit there and the, you know, you had a reserve slot and no one shows up, but at the same time, it's kind of this weird, like, look, taxpayers are forced. This is their only recourse, right. When it comes to, you know, combating property tax appraisal, something that they have no right, like they're not involved in, right. Like some appraiser has set the value based on quote market value, right. Which they of course set on the other end of that. And so like, this is their one recourse. It seems like the better solution, if we have to go this route, if we have to protest, right, our, our appraisals is that maybe we need to increase the transparency on how the process works, right? Like to encourage folks to actually show up to this as opposed to potentially charging them for missing a would-be set you know, hearing or something. I don't know if you've protested your um, appraisals before, but I've, I've lived in a few different counties and done it, and they've done it slightly different. And it can be a very confusing process, right? Like a lot of counties now have gone to this virtual, right, you know, sort of protest first, and then you can request an in-person. And it just, as a taxpayer, it's like, man, the hoops I have to jump through just to prove, right, that I believe that my my appraisal is too high is absolutely insane. And this just seems like a tone-deaf way to potentially address it. Yeah, you know, I think we would argue the best appraisal reform would be to eliminate appraisals altogether uh, by eliminating the property tax altogether. Uh, there's a number of reforms that we can make in the short term, and there there were some that were uh, that were offered uh, that were good. Uh, one that I've I've always favored, at least personally, is freezing appraisals at the point of sale. Uh, so you don't that would also reduce the size and need of appraisals constantly because ultimately what we're doing, you know, we've talked about or the federal government has talked about, uh, you know. Um, uh, unrealized gains taxes, right? So in the, you know, if you have an investments, you have an unrealized gain, they want to, to tax that. And so there's a big outcry, like, no, let's not do that. But quite honestly, this is exactly what we do with, uh, with home values is if you buy your home at, you know, $200,000 and a few years later, it's gone up to 300 or 350, you are being taxed on an unrealized gain. You don't have that money. It's equity in your house. And so, you know, for that reason, it's just, I would say a corrupt practice. Uh, so it, I think it would be smarter to create some some more solid reforms that actually deal with the problem instead of just putting band-aids all over it. So uh, that is all we have for today. Of course, we will be back next week. I believe Jeremy is on vacation, so I'll be solo in Taxpayer Talks next week. But we do appreciate y'all tuning in with us. We thank you, and we hope to see you next week at 5.30 on Thursday. As a quick reminder, make sure to check out our newly redesigned webpage at texastaxpayers.com. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our weekly email, The Fiscal Note, to stay up to date on issues that affect Texas taxpayers. We'll see you next time.